I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Today's guest was born and raised in Cape Town, South Africa. The Olympic dream captured her heart at 12 years old and never let go. Dom Scott began making tough decisions at a young age to pursue that big dream. And every decision she made was calculated to get her one step closer to the Olympics. From leaving her family to attend a high school with a track team to traveling across the world to attend college in the United States, Dom was intent on improving and becoming the athlete she knew she could be. Even though she made those tough decisions, she still started her collegiate career at the very bottom. But she was never deterred. She made changes. She adapted. She studied others. She kept pushing forward. And finally, she made history. Not only did she end up with five NCAA titles of her own, but she helped the Razorbacks win their very first national championship in a women's sport. That wasn't the end for Dom, though. After racking up 10 SEC titles and 12 All-American honors, Dom's dream finally came true. She became an Olympian in 2016, and she's right on track to be in Tokyo this year. Dom shares her dream-chasing journey across the world with us, her epic fairy tale moments along the way, and how she discovered who she was during the not-so-magical moments. Before we jump into the episode, I want to read you a five-star review that we received on Apple iTunes from JBL. It's titled Amazing and Inspiring. It reads, This incredible series gives great insight into the minds of elite athletes and shows who they are besides athletics. Whether you're a sports fan or just someone looking to get inspired and make a change in your own life, I highly recommend this. Listen and you will believe. JBL, thank you for that awesome review. If you've enjoyed the Pursuit of Gold podcast, I really want to encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review us. Share your favorite episodes with your friends. Help us get the word out so that we can continue to encourage, inspire, and provide helpful resources for athletes to reach their biggest goals. All right. I believe that there's gold in your future. So let's dive on into this episode with Dom Scott. Dom Scott, I am so glad to have finally coordinated our schedules between all of our collective PT sessions and, and, and all of our just crazy schedules trying to make it to the Olympics. So welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Uh, thanks, Laura. Thank you for having me. Well, okay. So you have this beautiful accent. You are not from the States. I want to hear about your upbringing in Cape Town, South Africa, and how you got started in running. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, my accent is definitely muddled. Um, I think most people would probably have a hard time guessing where I'm from these days. But yeah, I grew up in Cape Town, South Africa, um, a beautiful little place, you know, at the southern tip of Africa, of the continent of Africa. And I grew up in a very sporty household. I have one younger sister. My parents were very uh, present in my life. I was very uh, lucky to have that support from them. And I grew up playing every sport. I was the kid that just like wanted to do, do, do. Like my parents, you know, nothing was ever too much for me. I think my parents had to try and hold me back at some points. It wasn't only sports. Like I wanted to be on the dancing team. I want to be doing, you know, just like everything I could fit into my schedule. But I definitely had a love for sports from a very early age. And I did everything I could, um, like I said, that fit into my schedule. I love the team sports, I think, because of that team aspect and just like feeling like I was getting to have fun and play with my classmates. But from an early age, I definitely started to realize that I had a gift for running. Um, I would make the A teams is what we called them or the first teams in a lot of these other sports, sports like netball and field hockey and okay wait, wait, wait. what is, what is netball <laughs> what is netball <laughs> okay uh netball is like the female european version of basketball um okay. it's a smaller court um i think there are seven people on a team i may be making a mistake there but i think there are seven girls on a team and you have fixed positions on the court. So I used to play center, which center could go everywhere on the court except for in the shooting circle and the like defense uh, shooting circle. Okay. You couldn't dribble the ball. 
Uh, the ball's slightly smaller. There's no backboard on the net. So wow. similar to basketball, but also like not but really different. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've never heard of you, that. This is cool. Yeah, netball. I'm... I want to say it's in the Olympics. I could be, I could be making that up. Maybe it's the Commonwealth Games that it's, it's got to it's um, got to be Commonwealth Games. That cannot be. Like, I feel like I would have at least heard of that. <laughs> heard of netball? Yeah, it must be the Commonwealth Games. And then yeah, field hockey. I mean, obviously that that is an Olympic sport. Yeah, I know that one. Um, <laughs> and then water polo. Yeah, in the summer. So I love playing these team sports. And like I said, I would make the first team or the A team in these sports, but I really don't think it was because I was one of the most skilled uh, with my like hand-eye coordination. I think it was more because like I had a gift of endurance um, and was able to, you know, just swim forever, run forever and pretty quick too. So if there was a ball that was you know, about to go out of bounds, I was the one that was sprinting for it. Or like in netball, I said I was the center, which just meant I was the, like the energizer bunny, just running all <laughs> over the court. Um, and so kind of realized from that, if there was a sport I was going to be good at, it was going to be running. But growing up in Cape Town, track and field was not a sport that was offered. We had all these sports, but track and field was actually not one of them. I don't really know the reasoning behind that. It could have been facilities. Um, Cape Town is is a city. And so most schools, you know, have to choose between either a hockey astroturf or, you know, maybe even a swimming pool. And so we definitely didn't have tracks available. Uh, the closest track to me growing up was almost an hour away. So I, wow. I yeah, so I ran cross country in the winter months. Um, but then in the summer months, I would do my swim, swimming and uh, water sports. It was when I was about 14 years old, my mom entered me in my first track race. And that's when I kind of fell in love with running. Um, and running on the track just felt like I was flying. It felt like just so much more freeing than cross country running, even though cross country is, is amazing in its own right. Like it's a gritty, tough sport. Um, but track just felt like you were racing against the clock and you just felt like you were bouncing off this uh, rubber surface and um, really made me fall in love with the sport. But like I said, track wasn't offered in the town that I grew up or in the city even that I grew up. So in my ninth grade year, I made the hard decision. It doesn't seem that hard now, but at the time it was pretty hard to move to a town called Stellenbosch that was just over an hour away. And I became a weekly boarder where um, I would be at boarding school Monday through Friday, and then I would come home to Cape Town on the weekends. And that was purely so that I could run track and field. Um, there was a group of young athletes like myself that were out there training with a former South African um, record holder in the 1500 meters. His name was Johan Fari. And then also at my school, we had track and field. So I had opportunities to represent my high school on the track. And so, yes, that was kind of the first decision that I made to choose track and choose my sport uh, kind of over everything else in my life. Was that kind of scary? Because I mean, ninth grade year, what, you're 14 or 15 and you're leaving home for, I mean, I know you're going home on the weekends, but that's a big change at such a young age. It was, it was a big change, Laura. And that's, that's kind of why I said like looking, you know, now as an adult, it's like, oh, I was just going to school an hour away from my parents. Um, but at the time it was huge. My mom was a teacher at the school I went to. So I felt like I'd grown up in that school. You know, I knew all the teachers. I was allowed in the staff room. You know, I'd go visit my mom on lunch break to get tuck shop money is what we called it. And my sister was three years, is three years younger than me. So she was three grades below me. So the school really felt like my home. And yeah, I'd been at that same school right from like a grade R, which is our like before preparatory school, you know, right through to grade nine um, when I was like 14 years old. So making a decision that young to follow my heart and my dream of, you know, wanting to be an Olympian and represent my country on the world's biggest stage, it, it did seem huge back then and was very scary. And I remember I kind of brushed over this, but before I made this, the decision, I went to visit the school I moved to just for a day. My mom came out with me and 
the school I had attended in Cape Town was a private school. I guess what you would say is just they were in a very fortunate position, my school in Cape Town. You know, we had amazing facilities. Yeah, you know, it was just a fortunate situation. Um, whereas the school that I moved to in boarding school, they were a public school. They didn't have the facilities that the other school had to offer. There were girl, a lot of girls in boarding school because their parents had farms, you know, a couple hours away. So they would also go home on the weekends. It was just very different. Like there's, there wasn't a right and a wrong, but it was just very different from what I was used to. And as a 14 year old, I wasn't sure if I could, if I wanted that much change in my life. So after visiting that new school, I went back and I told my parents like, there's, there's no way I'm moving. Like that's too much change. (laughs) And it was about a month later, I was lying in bed one night and all I could think about was this dream of representing South Africa at the Olympic Games and went into my parents' room late late that night and said, hey, like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to move. So it was purely my decision. There definitely wasn't any pressure from my parents. And I did it. And it definitely wasn't easy at the beginning. It wasn't easy moving in the middle of the school year moving to a town an hour away where I knew, obviously knew no one. Yeah. And moving away from my family, that was, that was a big deal to me. What set that kind of Olympic dream, that Olympic fire in your heart? And were your parents totally on board with whatever decision you were making? Yeah. My parents have always been super supportive of me. Looking back at it, I'm so grateful for it. I don't know if I would have let my daughter just, you know, <laughs> pursue her dream and leave ha- leave the house at the age of 14. Um, they have been so selfless in supporting me and um, my dreams. But that's a really good question. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what gave me this dream of wanting to be an Olympian. I do know I was about 12 years old when I was watching the, I think it was the the 2004, so that's the Athens Olympics, mm-hmm. if I'm getting mm-hmm. that right. Yep. And I remember watching the Olympics and my mom saying to me, like, I think you can be an Olympian. She thought an 800 meter runner, which is pretty far off, but <laughs> she thought that I could, you know, that I could do that. And I think someone believing in me and watching how special the Olympics are and just seeing the whole whole world come together just seemed so amazing. And I guess as a dreamer and the determined person that I am as a 12-year-old, that just seemed like something that was worth fighting for and worth making hard decisions for. I love it. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Well, how did you end up all the way over here in the United States at the University of Arkansas? So in South Africa, it's kind of like a known fact that the NCAA is just gives you infinite opportunities um, as a student athlete. And unfortunately, in South Africa, our universities are just not quite set up like that. It's more study-based versus sports. Um, so you're not really able to get school scholarship, university scholarships. Um, there aren't as many opportunities, you know, to compete um, and to kind of climb your way into the professional ranks. Um, so I... Also, at a young age, knew that I wanted to come over to the States. And that was a big goal for me in high school and something that I was working towards. So when I finally started to run times that were worthy of recognition, my 11th and uh, 12th uh, grade years in high school, it was very exciting. Um, And so my mom was very helpful. She helped get recordings of some of my races and posting them on YouTube and getting all my NCAA paperwork done. Very grateful for that. I really didn't lift a finger when it came to that stuff. (laughs) Yeah, then coaches were allowed to start reaching out to me. And I remember they were allowed to call me once a week. And I told them Friday evenings were good because it was when I was uh, back home after being um, away for the week. And they would call me on their Friday mornings, my Friday evenings, and I would just chat to them and they would tell, you know, they would um, tell me how their team was doing and what races they were going to. And it all just sounded so glamorous, you know, being told (laughs) that they were flying to Palo Alto to compete in the Stanford invite or, you know, whatever it was. And I knew that that was what I wanted to do. Also, once it came to it, though, Laura, it was, it was a very scary, big decision. Once again, I was 
making a choice to leave home this time even further um, for what I hoped would be an opportunity to get me one step closer to the Olympics. About three days before getting on the plane, my bags were like spread out in our passageway. Um, and I was, you know, had been packing them all for a few days before. And I sat down on the bed with my mom and I got all teary and I told her, mom, I don't think I can go. It just, it just seemed like such a big step, um, mm-hmm. to, you know, to move continents, to go somewhere. I really didn't know anyone and I wasn't sure if I was up for it anymore. And I wasn't sure if it was the right decision. And my mom told me, um, she said, Dom, you owe it to yourself to at least try. And I will never forget that. Like that was once again, so selfless of my mom. My mom, you know, she loves me. I know she loves me and she, it must've been so hard for her to watch me uh, fly to a different continent at the age of 18, knowing that I would be there for four or five years. Um, But selflessly, selflessly, sorry. Mm -hmm. She told me to go and to follow my, follow my dreams follow my heart. Um, and if she hadn't done that, I, I think I probably would have pulled the plug on the whole thing. Oh, wow. What was that? I, I mean, just you're s- stepping off the plane into, I, 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 did you even get to go on visits or anything? Or was it kind of just, you made a commitment somewhere and you were just kind of flying by the seat of your pants? Like, what, what was that like? Were you able to come at all? Yeah, I was. I came on a recruiting trip the February before I left, um, and I visited three schools, all very different. I visited Washington State in Pullman, and then Arkansas, the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, and then Nebraska, uh, the University of Nebraska. So three very different schools. My husband thinks it's so funny, um, just because you know there are. Different, play, different parts of the U.S., mm-hmm. different regions, different conferences. But those were the three coaches I, was, I really enjoyed chatting to on my Friday evening calls with, these, um, with the coaches. So I did get to go on a visit. My parents did not come with me to the visit, though. That was another big thing. They told me, you have to make this decision for yourself and we don't want to sway you. Um, so as an 18-year-old, also, I flew to the States. It was my second time ever to the States and visited these coaches and these schools. My mom asked the coaches to send a picture of themselves <laughs> to, to me um, so that I at least knew who was picking me up at the airport <laughs> and you know, who to look out for. Smart. So I had, yeah, so I had visited Arkansas and I, I felt like I'd made an an informed decision of which school I wanted to go to. But yeah, but it it obviously still felt like a big deal. My parents also didn't fly. Yeah. They didn't fly over with me my freshman year, um, which looking back, I'm like, Oh, they should have come. That was pretty hard in itself. Having to set up my dorm room, like alone when my, when my teammates uh, who were my roommates had their parents, you know, drive them in, drop them off, help them set up their dorm rooms and get it all cute looking. And I would just flown over from South Africa with two full suitcases and, you know, just kind of ready to start my USA dream. <laughs> oh my goodness. I, I'm just trying to like, I can't even imagine. I like barely moved three hours away and I felt like that was a big adjustment. So yeah, I, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. Well, that was something actually, Laura, that helped me in my freshman year. I remember telling myself, which was, it was like a little bit of a lie, but I remember telling myself everyone is away from home. Um, And if there are any high school students listening to this, or even like early college students listening to this, you have to remember everyone's away from home. Everyone's going through some type of like separation uh, from their families or whatever position they were in before this. And I think saying that to myself really helped me um, because no one could really go home on the weekends. Even if it was just a three hour drive away, you would practice, you had things going on. You couldn't go, you couldn't just go home. Obviously for me, there was also like an eight or nine hour time difference, (laughs) which didn't help. (laughs) Um, But yeah, college, you got to remember everyone's away from home. 
that's great advice right there. Cause it's true. I mean, yes, I was a three hour drive, but I, I didn't go home most weekends. I stayed and we had Saturday morning practices and yeah, it just, yeah. that's a really, that's a really good point. Um, well, as you get settled in Arkansas and you're kind of getting into this college feel like, did you, what kind of adjustment, I mean, like, did they change everything about what you were doing, like running wise, or was it similar or like, I guess what was the adjustment like for you? There were definitely some things that like had to change. I came to the U.S. Um, for the runners listening to this podcast. I came to the U.S. with very much of a shuffle type stride. I'd grown up running next to my mom, who my mom had been a marathoner, ultra marathon runner in South Africa. So I grew up running next to her and kind of adapted her stride, which was a very efficient shuffle-like stride. So when Coach Harder, the Lady Razorbacks coach, saw me running for the first time, he immediately knew it had to change. I needed to drop my shoulders a little bit um, and have more relaxed arm carriage. And I needed to be picking up my knees a bit more so that I was getting more clearance on the ground and that way kind of able to get a bigger stride length and a more a faster stride length. Um, So that changed, which was great. And I actually saw results from that pretty quickly once it became second nature. And then obviously there were other adjustments. I mean, just, you know, moving across the world and being in the South, that's a, that's a whole new thing. I would say the biggest adjustment for me, honestly, though, was my accent and the way that I talk. Um, When I came to the States, I was very aware of the fact that I was different and I was from a different country and had grown up in a different culture. And now today I cherish those things and I'm so proud of those things. But when I was an 18 year old, it just made me feel different. And I'm kind of like sad admitting it, but all I wanted to do was fit in and not feel like I was so far away from home. So no, I don't think anyone was ever doing it maliciously. But whenever people would ask me to repeat myself because either they didn't understand what I'd said or they thought my accent was cool and wanted me to repeat myself or if they corrected me because they thought I was saying something incorrectly, those things really stuck with me. And so very quickly, I started changing the way I was talking, whether it was you know a word choice or not using a slang word or a saying that was, you know, said in South Africa or, you know, the pronunciation of my words. And looking back at it, I'm so sad that I did that. It was my way of trying to fit in and not feel so different because I just didn't want to be pointed out everywhere I went that, you know, I wasn't from there. But now looking back at it, it's something I can't really reverse. And I wish I still had my a thicker, at least South African (laughs) accent. I get that. I mean, obviously I didn't have, I mean, I have a Texas accent a little bit, but you know, I I didn't have anything like that, but I, in a lot of ways, personality wise, I, I always kind of felt like an outsider. Like I didn't blend in really well. And I always wanted to blend in wherever I went. I just wanted to blend in. And I think a lot of people, especially as teenagers, we feel like that. We just want to fit in with the people around us. But now, like you said, you know, being older, I look back and it's like, the things that made me stand out and feel weird are the things that made me who I am and made me stand out in great ways, you know, in, in the diving pool and in other right. ways in life. And so I think for, for maybe the young people listening, like, I know it's hard sometimes to feel like a sore thumb in, in the group of people like that you stick out and you don't blend in, but those are the qualities that will make you special and stand out in a great way in the years to come. So like, don't, don't take all those, don't change who you are to blend in and be like everybody else. You don't want to be like everybody else. You want to stand up and rise above that. So that's a great, great point. 100%, 100%. And I do feel like the world that we're living in today celebrates uniqueness a little bit more than even 10 years ago. But yeah, for anyone that's listening, like cherish, cherish those things. Yes, definitely. Well, you mentioned Coach Harder. So, and your college coach, Lance Harder, had a great quote about you that I found in this article. It says, It is a very, very rare that someone who masters the hill and dale of cross country can then be the best on the indoor and outdoor track. Those who succeed on the track have the ability to run with a quicker cadence. They're able to use their leg speed. Dom has all the skills and has established herself as a dominant force in all three sports. I mean, so. Tell me how, like walk me through some of the differences between the indoor and outdoor track versus like cross country. And 
I mean, it's all running. Yes. But I know there's got to be very different little details and techniques within that. Like, and how can you transfer those to each one? Tell me about all that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I have to just first say Lance is amazing. He's still the Razorbacks head coach and he's just crushing it. The girls are running so well and it's so exciting to see as a, as a past alum. So coming to the States, I'd never run on the indoor track before. In South Africa, our outdoor track season runs from about November through April because of our season. So there isn't really any need for us to have indoor track, whereas obviously in the States, in Europe, it's very cold in November through February, through March even. So you're running on the indoor track then. So my first semester at Arkansas, I didn't know what I was doing. It's a 200-meter track, so the turns are much tighter. The better tracks um, or the better facilities are banked so that your body is at least helped, has a little bit of help with those tight turns. At Arkansas, we were lucky enough to have one of those banked tracks. Um, So I was getting practice on it once or twice a week. And then obviously outdoor track is a 400-meter track. You know, that's the standard. That's what we're used to. And then cross country, you really never know what you're going to get. You know, it could be (laughs) a flat pancake flat course where you're running maybe on a golf course and it's manicured lawns and it's almost like you're on the track or you could be running over wood chips and pine needles in the back of a forest somewhere and it's hilly and undulating and uneven surface, you know, and you may not even be able to wear spikes. You have to wear racing flats because you're running over some roads. You just never know what you're going to get with cross country. But, you know, the fact that Coach Harder said that definitely means a lot. I felt very lucky that I was able to have so much success at Arkansas. Like I said, my freshman year was a big learning curve. I didn't do anything very impressive my freshman year. I like telling people that When I came to the University of Arkansas, I wasn't the best athlete on my team. I wasn't even the best freshman on my team. I had a long way to go Um, at the first cross-country nationals my freshman year. My team qualified for the national championships in Terre Haute, and I placed 144. So not very impressive at all. Um, My freshman cross-country season, uh, or freshman, uh, sorry, my freshman SEC championship. Um, My coach told me during the race that I could step off the course if I wanted to, because I was that far back. I wasn't making any impact to the race. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So my freshman year was a big learning curve. I definitely didn't start at the top. Um, And I, I like to just preface that because I think a lot of people, you know, they see the success, they read about the success, but the time and the races that it takes to get to the top isn't written up about um, and it isn't posted about. But there was that. I think there always is that stage. Um, so that's something good to remember too. But yeah, I was lucky. I won my next three SEC cross-country championships my sophomore, junior, and senior year and graduated having won five NCAA uh, individual Uh, titles as well during my time and helped the Lady Razorbacks win their first ever indoor and then outdoor team titles. I mean, that's incredible because I I mean, I I was, this is going to be my next question too. I was (laughs) wildly successful collegiate career with five NCAA titles. Like you said, 12 All-American honors, you're a 10 time SEC champion. And like, we're barely scratching the surface on your list of accolades. Um, but you, like you said, it wasn't easy at the beginning. So I guess what were some of the biggest challenges that you had going from freshman year, stepping off the track because you're not making an impact to winning just about everything by your what junior, senior year? Yeah, I can, I can share a story. I remember my first cross-country nationals at Terre Haute. Like I said, I came 144. My teammate, who was the first lady Razorback um, that day, I think she placed... She placed in the top 50, maybe in the, in the 40s, um, something around there. And I remember thinking to myself, her name was Kristen Galepsi. I remember thinking to myself, I'm able to stick with Kristen in like 95% of our workouts. Like she was, she was a few years older than me. She was definitely a better runner than me, stronger, fitter, you know, all of that more experience. But for the most part, I was able to stick with her in a lot of our workouts. So I thought to myself, why is they now at 
at races is there's such a big difference. I think she may have won the SEC uh, cross-country title, you know, or it was at least top three. And I was so far back that my coach was telling me I could step off the course. And I remember thinking to myself, what was making this big difference between practice and races? And I thought the only thing that could be making this difference is what Kristen's doing at home versus what I'm doing at home. So I started to look at, you know, what I was doing outside of practice. Was I eating correctly? Was I sleeping enough? Was I recovering enough? Was I... I have to, I have to pause and ask you a question. Did you ask Kristen what she did at home? I didn't. I wish I had. I think I just observed. I know she was a nutrition major and I remember that sticking with me. I was like a true freshman and she was at least a senior. And I remember I just looked up to her so much that I don't even think I had the confidence to ask her like, Hey, what are you doing at home? So I just tried to start observing, you know, when she, when the team, after all of our recovery runs, we'd come back to the infield of the track and we'd do some strides. She was always the last one out there. She was doing one or two extra strides or accelerations. Some people call them accelerations to get our legs turning over um, after a slower run. She was always out there last. She was doing a few more accelerations. She was doing some cool work. She was making sure she had a protein shake or some type of recovery drink immediately after her run. It just felt like she was training at this higher level than, than the rest of us were, you know? So even though I was able to do 90 to 95% of the work with her, she was doing, she was going home and doing all this extra stuff or, you know, after hours. And so I started taking notes of that. And I really feel like that's what helped me get to that next level. Um, you know, I wasn't only training for two to three hours a day um, when I was at practice. I was living like an athlete for 24 hours a day. I love that. I remember my coach telling me one time, like, if you want to be at that level, you have to start already acting like you're at that level. Like you've got to take that next game. Right. You'd be going out and partying on the weekend. Like you've got to take control of yourself and get your sleep and do all these things. And it's like, Oh yeah, I guess that's a good point. You know, you can't just get there and then figure it out. Like you got to figure it out to get there. Right. My dad, my dad loves the saying dress for the job you want, not for the job you have. And I feel like that's exactly what we're trying to say. It's like, mm-hmm. you have to act and you have to dress you have to fuel, you have to recover like the job that you want or the athlete you want to be, not the athlete that you currently are. Yes. Uh, I love it. So good. So good. Well, okay. Leading up from like this beginning where you're 144th to now you are like in your epic moments. I mean, at one of your, I think it was your final NCAAs in 2015, where you got the distance medley relay title, your first NCAA title, the Razorbacks won the team title. And you got proposed to, I mean, <laughs> even process all of that happening in the same like couple of days and you walk us through that amazing time. Yeah, that was, that was uh, pretty incredible. So it was um, March of 2015. It was my senior indoor season. Um, I had an, I had a fifth year of outdoor and um, cross country because of an injury, but it was my senior indoor season. And we went into the weekend. I knew I was the top ranked in the 3000 meters. I think we were top three ranked top three in the distance medley relay. We were pretty high ranked as a team, but we all went into the weekend knowing you still have to put the pieces together on the day. You know, it doesn't matter what the rankings say. We were very lucky we were hosting that year. So we kind of had home turf oh, advantage. Man, this really was which is, It doesn't get more epic than this. <laughs> no, it really, it really was a fairy tale weekend. So yeah, so we were in Arkansas. My parents from South Africa flew out. This was, I think, the first NCAA championships they had come to watch. And wow. you know, because we were in Arkansas, my my husband, my now husband, um, he's from Arkansas. So his family was there. We had family friends, like, you know, from all over the state drive in. And, you know, it wasn't COVID, so everyone was allowed to come and watch, which <laughs> <Right>. was great. <laughs> Pack out the stadium. Um, and yeah, the first night, everything just went to plan. I was able to 
anchor the the DMR to our national win, which was a big 10 points for the Lady Racebacks. Nice. And then the second, the second evening, I had the 3K, which was the second last event on the program. And like I said, I went into it, I think, as the favorite or one of the favorites. The year before, I had come second to one of your previous podcast guests, Abby Diagostino, <laughs> or she was Diagostino. And so, you know, I knew I could do it, um, but I still had to, I still had to perform um, and make it around the track 15 times. <laughs> but yeah, it just, it went perfectly. And I was able to win my first individual national title. And I got off the track and when I saw my coach, Lance Harder, he, he told me, he was like, your 10 points just secured the win for the Lady Racebacks, oh, which was man, that's so awesome. sweet. It was so sweet. No female program at Arkansas, like no other sport had ever won a team championship before. So we were like the first women's program to win a team title. It was just amazing. So go through media, have that moment with my coach. It was so special. We walk over to the awards um, and they had the podium one through eight for the first team All-Americans. Got my trophy, came down from the podium. Um, everyone's, you know, around me wanting to take pictures, my parents and family and friends. And, you know, even like my neighbors were there. <laughs> um, just everyone, because, you know, it was right there. It was in our backyard pretty much. And then my husband came up or now husband came up and he gave me a hug and he was like, oh, let me see your trophy. And so, you know, he took it from me and then he put it down um, and he gave me a hug and it was super loud in the, in the track um, because there was still the four by four going on. Um, and he whispered in my ear and, you know, said something sweet and then asked me to marry him and then got down on one knee. And I was just, I mean, bawling, <laughs> just like could not control my emotions. It was just way too much for one weekend for huh. 24 hours. Right. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a big, it was a big weekend. Oh my goodness. So did you even know that was on the radar or was that like total surprise? I mean, I was a senior and we'd been dating since day one of freshman year. So I think, you know, it's one of those things you you hope will happen or, you know, we'd been talking about spending the rest of our lives together, I should say. But no, it was 100% a surprise that day. Like we hadn't gone ring shopping, you know, or done anything like that. I was sweaty, hadn't even washed my hands since the race. Like, no, I had no idea that he was going to propose that day or any day in the near future. Wow. Well, well done. Well done. I, I mean, <laughs> where do you go from a moment like that where literally so many dreams coming true, you are breaking all kinds of records, making history. I mean, and the rest of your life looks like it's just going to be Cinderella land. I mean, how do you come off that high and, and what do you, what are your next steps after that? Yeah, that's, that's actually a really good um, point. So I would say the next year itself was a bit of a Cinderella story. So this is 2015 in March. I have another year and a half of eligibility and time at the University of Arkansas. So 2016, at the end of 2015, Cameron and I get married in South Africa. It was amazing. 2016, I have my final um, outdoor season with the Lady Razorbacks. I win both the 5k and the 10k at the NCAA championships in Oregon, which was, you know, once again, kind of like dreamlike. Um, not too many girls have done that. And I was very fortunate. Sorry, I'm like skimming over this now. <laughs> um, but I was very fortunate to then go on and sign a professional contract with Adidas. And then later... It really that is summer, like all your dreams are coming true, like one after another. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was like what I'd worked for since I was a little girl. Um, so this was the summer of 2016. And then I was, you know, very lucky to get put on the South African team to represent South Africa in the Rio Olympic Games. So I would say for about a year, it was all pretty Cinderella-like. Oh, well, so t take me through like, yeah, your process for the Olympics. Like, how did you qualify? I mean, did you just have to get a time somewhere? Did you guys actually have a trials? And what was your experience in Rio like? Yeah. So for South Africa, um, you have to run the standard. You're allowed to run it anywhere, which is pretty common. 
I ran it at one of the Stanford meets in Palo Alto in April. Um, in April, in my senior year, I had to fly to South Africa for the trials, which was obviously very understandable. I missed about a week of school. Quick, I made it a quick little trip, as quick as you can make flying to South Africa <laughs> and back. Um, so went home. I asked if I could run a different event though. Um, I wanted something that was a little bit shorter and would have a bit more competition in. Um, there wasn't anyone at the time that was running qualifying standards in the 10,000. So I thought, hey, let me run something faster, have a little bit more fun. So they let me run the 1500, which was competitive. I was competing against Casta Semenya, who is a, an Olympic uh, medalist, a gold medalist. Um, so that, so that was awesome. And then flew back to the States and then in about July, probably they announced the South African team and I was very pleased that they'd put me on it with South Africa. It isn't as clear cut as some of the other teams. And I I was about to say, unfortunately, I'm not sure if I should use that word. Um, they, make a decision on whether they think you'll make a finals, if you'll win a medal, because for them, it is a financial cost to send a big team. Um, So they don't always send a full team. They don't always send everyone who's qualified. Um, And obviously there are certain events and certain sports where it's very competitive and they have, you know, more than the three athletes running for whatever the sport is qualifying. Um, And the women's distance events on the track, there are not too many girls that have been running qualifying times. Um, so that's, I guess, where I get a little bit lucky. So yeah, so that was how I made the South African team. It was um, very exciting. <laughs> I remember training for the Rio Olympics in the summer of 2016 in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Um, I was pretty much by myself. My coach was still around, but all the Razorbacks had gone home for the summer And I remember it was the first time that I was like, oh, wow, like this isn't as fun as it was in college. Um, When I was, you know, a lady Razorback, almost every step of every run of every practice, I had a teammate next to me um, and we were, you know, we would just be chatting or we would be helping each other, pushing each other, pulling each other through workouts and tough days. Um, But all of a sudden I was training in the heat of Arkansas summer, very hot and humid by myself doing 10K workouts, which even on the perfect day, I'm not very fun. And I remember that was like the first time that I was like, wow, like this is, this is what I've signed up for. Like this, this is going to be tough. So I know that's a big adjustment, like training wise. How did you feel in Rio? How did it go? How did you compete? And was it Like, did you leave feeling like you had accomplished what you'd hoped for or did you leave kind of wanting more? So building up to Rio, I remember, obviously when I got put on the team, I was super excited. I was, you know, once again, this was fairy tale like I was going to get to live out one of my my childhood dream. You know, the dream that so many people have. I was getting to do that. I felt very grateful and very lucky. Um, But I remember a week or two before the Olympics feeling very nervous and very overwhelmed because I felt like um, I have a lot of people that love and support me in my life and, you know, neighbors and friends, but I feel like a lot of them don't actually follow track and field until it's the Olympics. And so all of a sudden, you know, people don't really understand like what it means to be competing in the diamond league or, you know, maybe even the national championships. But once you say the Olympics, you know, everyone's kind of eyes uh, (laughs) light up and, you know, they want to talk to you. They want to know you. I can relate to that. Yeah. So all of a sudden people are like, oh my gosh, you're going to the Olympics. Like, that's so exciting. I can't can't wait to watch you run. Like, you're going to do so well. Like, you're going to win, you know, and people start kind of projecting this type of stuff on me, people that, you know, normally aren't even really taking notice of the fact that, you know, I'm flying to Europe for a Diamond League meet and, you know, they don't know what that is or care what that is. But all of a sudden, like people are caring and interested and, you know, they're telling me they're going to watch me and that I'm going to (laughs) win. And I knew that wasn't the case. Yeah. So I started to get pretty nervous. And I remember going to church one Sunday and the message was about not worrying and putting your trust in God and worrying doesn't add any minutes to your life. And 
that sermon gave me so much peace. And I took that with me to the Olympics and really feeling like there's no reason for me to be worrying about this. Like God has this in control and worrying about what other people think of me and think I'm going to do or achieve at the Olympics, like isn't going to add anything to the experience. And I remember my husband telling me something that also really helped me. He told me, you earned yourself, you earned your spot on that start line. And that gave me so much peace because there was a time that I was feeling like, oh my gosh, like I don't belong here. Like I'm not going to win this race. I'm not, I'm not even in contention for winning this race. You know, I, I just qualified and maybe even feeling like a little bit of a fraud because, you know, what am I doing at the Olympics? But Cameron telling me, no, you earned your spot on that start line. You're the best athlete in your country. You know, you ran the standard that the world put up there for you to run and be eligible to be on that start line. And that meant so much to me. And and those two things, that sermon and what Cameron said, really helped me to enjoy the experience and kind of soak it all in and be proud of myself. So I had a great experience at Rio, um, I think, you know, because of those two things. Well, I love that. And I think that's really important for people to hear that someone who, you know, in, in so many of our eyes is so accomplished, you know, having such an amazing collegiate career, you're, you know, doing all these amazing world meets and professional meets and things like that. And still you're nervous and have feelings that you don't belong. And, uh, you know, that that's normal, but to be reminded that like you earned your spot there, you don't have to prove anything to anyone else. This is not about everyone else. It's, it's your dream and your goal and you've earned your start there. Like that's such a great reminder, like to just bring it back. Cause we, it's so easy. I feel like for athletes to, to get everybody else's expectations in our head and suddenly they become our expectations. And it's like, where did this even come from? Like two months right. ago, none of this mattered to me. I didn't care about any of that. Where did this come from? You know, and just cause their thoughts in our heads doesn't make any of it real, you know, just cause like a, a lot of people, you know, they, they start to have these doubts and they believe the doubts in their head. And it's like, just because something is dropping in your head doesn't mean it's factual or it's truth or it's real or it's something you need to believe or buy into. So I, I love what you were saying. Um, I just love the confidence and the peace that you got from the sermon and from your husband. I think that's just awesome. Great reminder. Great reminder. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and I remember walking out onto that Rio track. It was this beautiful blue and looking up into the stands and my family was there and my husband's family was there and just feeling so proud that, you know, I had made my dream come true. You know, I had taken the the necessary steps to make my dream a reality and that, you know, my parents and my husband's family was there supporting me. It was, it was very cool. And the race went great. Um, I did not win. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> I came 21st and I ran a personal best um, and became the second fastest South African ever. Wow. Um, so yes, so that in itself was, was awesome. I mean, I'm going to say something else though. When people, after the fact, when people ask me, how did the Olympics go? I would tell them like, oh, I ran great. Like, you know, I ran a personal best and um, became the second fastest South African ever. And the first thing they would say to me is, what place did you get? And I felt embarrassed saying 21st. And I don't know why, because that's 21st in the world. Like, that's pretty freaking good. But at the time, I was embarrassed to say I'd come 21st, which is ridiculous. It is. Yeah. I totally understand that. I mean, I, I, I went next kind of not accidentally, but I, I won my first Olympics, but I went to two more and didn't win. And people, I, I got some interesting comments and I always get interesting feedback on it. And, and for me, it's like, okay, well, maybe I didn't have these epic performances at those other two games, but it didn't make them not worth going. It didn't make them right, not amazing experiences. Yeah. It didn't make yeah. that. I, I wouldn't take back any of it. Like it was such a great growing experience. And, and yeah, I'm very proud of the things I've done. And then it's people forget, like I, I love, there was an old commercial. It's probably back when you were like itty bitty toddler and probably didn't see it in South Africa, but there was this one commercial where this guy, I think it was a weightlifter. He lifted this incredible amount of weight and he is jumping up and down and he is so excited 
and he gets the silver medal and the quote, cause that, that was back when the no fear and it was like first or second place is the first loser. And that was this really big thing. Yeah. Well, this guy is jumping up and down with joy because he got the silver medal. And it's like, it's not about the place. It's about how you feel about what you did. And it was just, that's always such a good reminder. Like we got to, we got to take a step back sometimes and realize what is really important to us and what other people say, like, we've got to just be able to let that go. Cause they just don't understand. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's definitely easier said than done. Um, but I definitely remember, remember that the, the other thing that I haven't really shared too much publicly, but after the Olympics, let me rewind. When I was younger, I was one of those kids growing up. Uh, some people would call them a goody two shoes. Um, I said that I would never smoke, I would never ride a motorbike, and I would never get a tattoo. Um, that was just kind of you know the beliefs that I had, and mm-hmm. I thought that if you smoke or drank or rode motorcycles, you know you were probably living too close to the edge, and you know those type of people probably wouldn't make the Olympics. But I did say that I ever, that if I ever made the Olympics, I would get the Olympic rings tattooed. And I remember right after the Olympics, we were still in Rio. Um, my sister asked me, so Dom, are you going to get the Olympic rings tattoo? And, you know, I, I told her at the time, I was like, oh my gosh, like I haven't even really thought about it. And we flew back to Arkansas and I thought about it on the flight home and thought about it a little bit more. And... I realized that I didn't want to get a tattoo of something that I didn't feel like had changed me, nor was it something that I really wanted to find my identity in, like being an Olympian. Like, obviously, it's something that I'm so proud of um, because, you know, I did make a lot of choices, hard choices that I think helped lead me to the Olympics. And it wasn't something that was just like given to me on the silver platter that I had. Mm -hmm. So it was something I had to work towards. But at the end of the day, like it, being an Olympian and having competed in the Olympics isn't something that made me a better person or like changed my life significantly either. It was really, honestly, almost like sadly, just another race in another country. Uh, it was very cool. It was super cool. Um, and it made me realize that dreams are possible and, you know, that there are some things that are definitely worth working towards, but it wasn't something that I wanted to be branded as. I didn't want to be branded as an Olympian. And so about a year later, my husband, who's super cute, he got me an Olympic rings ring. <laughs> so I wear that on my finger most days and, you know, I use it as, I Yay. guess, like, oh, Mine's not on right now. (laughs) We match. Okay. (laughs) And, you know, it's something that I love and I like find strength in it and reminds me on some days when, you know, I don't feel very strong or capable, you know, that I am an Olympian and I made that dream come true um, through my own hard work and determination. But yeah, it was through that (laughs) and a sermon or two that made me realize that if you are searching for your identity in anything other than Christ, that it's never going to fulfill you and it's never going to satisfy you. And you're always going to be left wanting more and going to the Olympics. It was kind of like, Oh, like that's it. (laughs) Like, (laughs) do I now have to like come first to leave or win the gold to leave the Olympics feeling changed or feeling fulfilled or feeling like worthy. Mm. And I realized like, no, like the only thing that's going to bring me peace and satisfaction is, you know, finding my identity in Christ. Um, so that was, that was probably the biggest thing that the Olympics taught me. <laughs> that's a big one. Wow. That, I mean, that is huge. And and again, athletes so struggle in, in finding their identity and their performance or their score at the end of the meet or their time or their place. Um, and it's easy to get mixed up in that and caught in that. And then you, your expectations raise and raise and you'll, you'll never get to it. There's going to be a point where you can't meet those expectations because they're so high and, and we lose who we are without that. And so being able to find our identity outside of that is huge, is, is definitely huge. Um, so I love that you, you learned that that sounds like probably the best Olympic lesson I think I've ever heard. So, so what, 
what changed since 2016? Like, are you still in Arkansas? Like, have you been to Worlds? Did you take time off? Like, what what was your next couple of years like? So I'm still uh, running professionally for Adidas. About a year and a half ago, my husband and I moved out to Boulder, Colorado, um, so that I now have training partners, which is really exciting. <laughs> um, so we're based at Altitude for me, um, you know, in one of probably the best places to train in the world. Um, got infinite amount of trails and dirt roads. And yeah, still traveling around the world, competing, or at least whenever we can, right? With COVID. Right. <laughs> um, but still competing. I would say that through the Olympic experience and actually once again through COVID, it kind of reminded me and it was like a refresher that I am more of my sport uh, or more than just Dom Scott, the athlete and Dom Scott, the runner, but that I'm a wife and I'm a sister and a daughter and that I don't have to do anything amazing on the track for people to love me um, or to be enough. And that that's been that's been pretty life changing, I would say. I I think you know as a as a twelve year old um, throughout high school and then throughout college, just like I was very happy that I was constantly chasing the next thing. You know, if it was you know to first just qualify for the SEC meet, then it was to win the SECs, then it was to qualify for nationals, then it was to win nationals. There was always something else. It was always the next step, the next level, and that's amazing. Like that's what allowed me to live out my dreams and now be a professional athlete. But I've just learned now through, I guess, my professional career and being slightly older that, that there are going to be bad days and that doesn't take away anything from me. Um, so that's, that's been pretty powerful. Well, how, and I'd like to hear this because I I love how you're just finding this like firm foundation of who you are and where your identity lies and that running is something you're amazing at and you love to do and you have big goals in, but it's not just who you are. Like, so what is your definition of success now? I know it's kind of a loaded question. So (laughs) yeah, that, that, that is, that's really, really hard. And I think that's something I'm still trying to figure out. I think for me, I've always told my husband that I just want to look, that I just want to like run to my full potential. And he's kind of asked like, well, what does that mean? And I'm being like, well, I don't know what that means because I don't know what God's plans are for me. So I think it means what my level of success or, um, sorry, what was the word you used? Yeah. The definition of success. Yeah. Success. Yeah. Is knowing that I've done everything to give myself that best chance to give myself the best opportunity as of winning or of, you know, being the best possible dom I can be. So, you know, a year and a half ago, that was moving out to Boulder. Um, it was a very hard decision, but my husband and I both felt like it was the decision that would allow me to stand on the start line with peace, knowing that we had done everything to give me the best opportunity to be the best dom on that day when, you know, at the championship or whatever race it was. Yeah. So I think I've, I now just find peace and like knowing that I wake up every day, I try my hardest and, you know, give a hundred percent in every aspect of, of being the best athlete I can be. I don't know if that made any sense. It's to- <laughs> it makes total sense. I love it. I okay. absolutely love it. I can totally relate to that. And so how you mentioned the COVID a little bit, because I know it's been crazy for all of us. Like, how has that directly impacted you? And, um, you know, have you met your qualifying stuff? Like, do you have to go to a trials? Like, how, what does that look like for you going into this summer? Yeah, um, I would say that last year, COVID hit me pretty hard in terms of just like the emotional baggage that came with COVID and just like the change in structure and routine. But I was very fortunate that I came into the Olympic year. So I came into 2020 with my Olympic qualifier already um, in the 5,000. So I have already qualified for the Olympics by a decent margin. Um, Also in the 2019 World Championships, I qualified for the finals in the 5,000. So I think South Africa sees me as like a worthy candidate of representing their country, which is great, or my country. So right now, I should be flying to South Africa next month uh, to compete at the South African trials for the Olympics. 
However, there is actually still a travel ban of South Africans into the U.S. Um, so we're kind of waiting to see if that gets lifted in time. If not, um, I'm hoping that South Africa grants me a pass this year. Um, I was just home in South Africa in December and was able to sneak back into the States about maybe about three weeks before the, the, the travel ban started or the wow. restrictions were set in place. Um, and that was because there was a second or third uh, strand of COVID that was found kind of like making its way through South Africa. So the U.S. put a stop on South Africans traveling back into the U.S. So we're just trying to trying to navigate our way through that. Um, but right now I have my qualifying standard and I feel like I'm in a pretty good situation with South Africa. And they seem to be working and cooperating with me pretty well, which I'm very grateful for. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I had to ask you this, like, Cause not every day is great. Like you have a great head on your shoulders. Um, I love, I love your mindset. I love the way you process stuff, but I mean, there's, there's hard days and there's painful days. There's days where, you know, doubt threatens to win. Um, how, how do you keep going? What keeps you going on those days? I wish I could say it was me. <laughs> and I wish I could say that it was, um, you know, just being mentally strong and, you know, stronger than the doubts and even my faith, but there are just some days that those negative thoughts and um, whatever it is just like gets the best of you. And I really feel like surrounding myself with people that love me and support me, that's what helps me through those really horrible days. Um, so having my husband, my parents, my sister, I'm very lucky my sister actually is living with us right now. Um, having those people around me that can help me through the bad days and remind me of the good and, you know, remind me of, you know, how hard I'm working and just to look at the positives, be optimistic, look at things in the long run and not always just the short term and kind of like remind me of who I am um, and what I stand for. I really think that that's what gets me through the hard days. So I would say surrounding yourself with, with the right team. I love that. Even, even us individual athletes need a team of support around us for sure. I have to ask, what's, tell me about the Dom squad. What is the Dom squad? <laughs> oh my gosh. The Dom squad has had so many transitions over the past couple of years. Um, but to keep it brief, the Dom squad started when I was in college and just friends, family, teammates, everyone just thought, I guess it was cute to say like, we're on the Dom squad. So <laughs> that first um, indoor nationals in 2015, when my husband proposed and we had friends and family traveling from the States and even South Africa to come watch me. My husband had about 50 Dom squad shirts made. And it was just, you know, a shirt with on the, on the back of it, it was printed Dom squad. And so everyone that was there that weekend to support me was wearing one of these shirts and it was so special. And then the next year, um, at the out, the NCAA outdoor championships, my parents were like, we need a short sleeve shirt. We can't be wearing a long <laughs> sleeve. Like it's like, you know, 70 degrees. So we made another one. And then when we went to the Olympics, my parents and Cam's family, they wanted a new one for the Olympics. So we made another one and it just kind of like kept going. And then I always had people reaching out to me on social media, you know, hey, where can I get a Dom Squad shirt? Where can I buy one? I want to support you too. So that's one tangent of the Dom Squad. The other tangent of the Dom Squad is when I was in Arkansas running professionally uh, for Adidas before I'd moved out to Boulder, I felt like there was so much time that I had on my hands um, now that I wasn't in school. And I had a parent come up to me and ask, would I please coach his daughter? And I was really conflicted with it because I didn't want to take away from her, the, the daughter, or anyone's experience to be on a school team um, and be representing their school and hanging out and competing with their and training with their um, their school friends and their peers. But there was this gap in Arkansas where girls from and boys from the age 8 to 12 so before they get to junior high when they're in middle school there is no track or cross country for them so they were going to junior high having never had any like base training um of running and then they were expected to compete against girls that were older than them and you know had been running for a few years 
So I thought that that was an opportunity for me to step in. And so we started the Dom Squad, which was this little training group we just met once a week, super low key, because once again, these girls are way too young to be doing anything serious. We'd meet once a week for an hour and a half. I had a group of 15 girls and uh, they were ages eight through 12. And we were doing the basics of running. So I was teaching them form, drills, kind of like what workouts look like, you know, what hard work is mm-hmm. <laughs> and really just teaching them the basics of running. Um, so that was the other avenue of the Dom Squad. Since moving to Boulder, that avenue of the Dom Squad has, I guess, disintegrated um, because I'm no longer doing that. But now, so now the Dom Squad's kind of just gone back to the basics, which is just uh, the people who love and support me and uh, want to be repping me from anywhere in the world. Well, where can we follow you online and cheer you on and be part of the Dom Squad, uh, you know, if we want to? Where, where can we follow you online? Oh, you're so sweet. Honestly, Instagram is most probably the easiest one, but you can find me on Instagram and Twitter and I even have a website um, where I post what's going on in my world. And that's just Dom Squad Run SA. Awesome. We will make sure to link to all of those in the show notes so that people can just click right down there and find you right away. Dom, thank you so much for just making time for us today. I know our schedules were a little conflicting there, but I'm so glad you were able to make time for us and come on and just, I mean, you dropped so many great truth bombs today. And I think uh, just really reminded us that we need to find our identity, not in our performance, you know, but in God um, or something, you know, in, in ourselves, knowing that we are worthy and of value, um, not because of our performance alone. So thank you for all those reminders. And uh, we wish you the best of luck in Tokyo this year. Thanks, Laura. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.